Hello and welcome to WNHH-FM's Dateline New Haven. I'm your host, Paul Bass, inviting you to look behind the headlines on the stories that make New Haven tick. Robert Heimer and Loretta Grau work hard to keep New Haven ticking and these days staying a step ahead of the opioid crisis. Robert and Loretta are professors at the Yale School of Public Health. They're here with us in the WNHA studio to talk about the crisis, how we talk about it, and maybe how to try to solve it. Folks, thanks for coming in the studio. It's a real pleasure to have you. Pleasure to be here today. It's not a custom role for journalists. We actually get people who know something and we talk about it rather than just get sound bites from people who want to sound like they know something. So it's, it's good to have some people. Tell us, how, how bad is this opiate crisis, Loretta? We hear a lot about it, that it, more people are dying from opioids than car crashes. Some people say, well, this was happening in the black community before now because it's happening in New Hampshire to white people. We're hearing about it. What's the truth? Well, I think it's a um, an increasing problem. Um, and uh, what I basically do is look at the opioid-involved fatalities um, in Connecticut. And I can say kind of in a simple way that um, it has been increasing um, probably the first big increase um, in the last eight years was around 2013, where all of a sudden we saw uh, an increase in what had been previously kind of going down the number of heroin-involved uh, fatalities. Right, heroin came back. Heroin came back. Um, was it just replacing cocaine, or was it some new phenomenon, Robert? The way I... Oh, sorry, Lorena. Yeah, the way I, I conceptualize it, and let's see what Robert says, too, uh, is that in April of 2010, I, I use that as my benchmark, um, the FDA really kind of had a push with the pharmaceutical industry to make more abuse-deterrent formulations of opioids. What does that mean? So that means that um, you can't take the pills, the pharmaceutical pills, and um, crush them and either... Uh, uh, make them into an injectable form or snort them um, and get the effect that you're um, desiring. So they can design the pill to prevent that? They, to deter. It's abuse deterrent. Um, there but, are always ways around these things. Yes. Drug users are very clever. Well, yeah, they're very motivated and they're smart people. Um, so at any rate, uh, there was this, this push from the FDA for abuse deterrent formulations of opioids about 2010 and over the next two or three years, you saw an inc uh, a decrease in the pharmaceutical opioid-involved fatalities and a concomitant like increase in the number of heroin-involved fatalities. So that's so kind what Robert of, said, they'll always find a way if they're determined to yes. get high a certain way yeah. and parallel their health. If, if you get the companies to stop making it possible, they'll go get the heroin on the street. Well, the, the, the narco-traffickers are also clever in identifying new markets mm -hmm. and uh, finding ways to uh, inconspicuously deliver drugs to places where they'd never been delivered before. Yeah. Um, so the new market, the newer market, was a second kind of spike or increase around 2015, where all of a sudden we've had uh, an increase in the number of fentanyl-involved um, Fatality. And it was fentanyl, was that just the pharmaceutical advance that it became easier for traffickers to sell it and use it mixing into the drugs to increase the high? Or was fentanyl always around? And what happened in 2015 that we started seeing more fentanyl? Um, maybe Robert can talk about that. I'm not sure. All I can tell you is what I see. Yeah, so you saw that happening. Rob, do you know how that happened or why? I, 
the advantage of, of for narco traffickers of of using fentanyl instead of heroin is that it's a fully synthetic opioid. It doesn't come from the opium plant like heroin does, which you make from morphine. It's and because it's fully synthesized, you don't need to grow poppies. You can just buy the precursors uh, from various different places and synthesize it yourself. Or there are even black marketeers selling fentanyl and fentanyl derivatives directly from China to narco traffickers or small businesses in the United and States. And why did it explode in 2015? Was it around before that? Was it just being worked on more? Or Loretta, you seem to... Uh, yeah, so let me just put this in context a little bit. So up until around 2014, 2015, the number of fentanyl-involved fatalities here in Connecticut... And this will vary a bit depending on what state you're looking at. So I'm just only going to speak about um, Connecticut. Uh, was probably less than 5% of all the fatalities. That happened in the state. That was before 2015. Yeah, that basically it was pharmaceutical op- um, fentanyl that was coming from our pharmaceuticals and was being diverted or you know misused. Um, but this 2015 date, I kind of say, is when you started to have what Robert just referred to, um, the advent of the fentanyl coming in from China primarily. So, so at, at first, fentanyl was added to heroin to increase its apparent potency. Mm-hmm. Fentanyl is, a, is, an, is an opioid analog that comes on really fast, and you feel it very quickly. And I saw some some uh, statistic given. I don't know if it was a real statistic about how many times more pleasurable it is in your brain than having the best sex you've had in your life. Have you seen that statistic? I I, I don't know how to like make that computation. Like thirty times or something. They I don't know how to make that it. computation. Yeah. But in any case, it's intensely pleasurable and it happens fast. It all, de- and at it first all, they mix it it all depends heroin. whether the Drug Administration or the sex is coerced. Right. <laughs> okay. So 2015, the this fentanyl came in from China, it had much more, it was mixed with heroin, and then it was delivered a different way since then? And now it, and now it's, in, in some places, even re- completely replaced heroin. You remember you just get straight fentanyl? Yeah. I thought that could kill you like in two it seconds. It does, but you cut it with other things. And that's why, it, that's why there are so many fentanyl deaths, is because it's so potent, it takes a really clever compounding chemist to, to, to cut it properly. Uh-huh. And of course, you don't have licensed compounding chemists working for narco-traffickers, generally speaking. Mm. That's interesting. So you're saying, Loretta? Well, and the, the other, above and beyond fentanyl, there are the fentanyl analogs. At this point, there are 44 fentanyl analogs. Um, analogs means they're like fentanyl, but there's some little chemical variation. Um, but they are just as potent or more potent than fentanyl itself. Um, these are creeping into our state um, gradually. That's interesting. So that's that's what happened. So in uh, Connecticut in 2016, how many deaths did we have and what percentage of the total deaths was it in Connecticut? All right, so um, we were cruising. I like to give this in simple terms. We were cruising up until about 2012 at about two to 300 deaths per year, opioid-involved deaths. Including heroin. Including heroin. Yes, when I say opioid, I'm talking about pharmaceutical opioids, fentanyl, heroin. Um, And then in about 13, 14, we went up to about four to 500. In 15, 16, 2015 and 2016, 
we we just skyrocketed. Um, we had uh, in 2000. Um, I'm looking at my cheat sheet here. Um, we had uh, 179. Uh, I'm sorry. Um, we had 648 uh, opioid-involved deaths in 2015. 848 in 2016, and I will say that we will have close to 1,100, if not over, in 2017. We are doing that um, data cleaning right now. Wow. So I know we we spent recently, one of our reporters spent the night with the fire department paramedics when they're going around to treat um, people having Narcan, I mean, having heroin, uh, fentanyl overdoses, heroin, and giving the Narcan. They got 547 overdoses they dealt with just in New Haven last year three-fifths of which were presumed to be heroin. And, you know, when you talk to them in New Haven, when you listen to the podcasts of the paramedics in other states, they say, we're not sure we're helping anybody. We go, and you read the Times the other day, the story where they, the same guy four times in one day, and we're going to get some questions from the web in a second. Um, do you think these paramedics, I mean, obviously in the immediate sense, they're helping somebody stay alive from an overdose, and some people do turn around their lives at some point, but they kind of feel like they're not, these people are just going to keep doing it till they die. Robert, are they helping anybody? There's an old saying that you can't help, um, you know, a, a dead addict. I don't like to use the word addict, and that's why it's an old saying. Um, opioid use disorder is a treatable disease, and we can get into that later. And we're going to, yeah. And when we get into that, you'll, you'll begin to understand what the problem is, that when uh, paramedics go out and administer a dose of naloxone, Narcan. There's no, there's no immediate follow-up. Mm. What's, what's fascinating is that the ED at Yale and, and now at affiliated Yale hospitals has a program that directly con, you know, connects people who come in after an overdose to immediate medication-based treatment for their opioid use disorder. That, that second step is key to, to not just saving a life, but preserving a life for the longer run. Is this a new program? It's been around for, what, two years now? So Even now everyone, so are those 548 times, which are, it's not 548 people because some are multiple. Right. Every one of them coming to Yale Hospital is getting connected to treatment after that? Except so few of them actually come to the hospital. Oh. But also, they have to want to go into treatment. Um, so another study that I'm doing with... Wait, Dr. why don't they go to the hospital if they get Narcon? Because um, they're drug users and they want their experience in the emergency rooms in hospitals has routinely been in the past. Um, The emergency docs have this phrase for uh, people called gomers, which stands for get out of my emergency room. Mm. Because they're a drain on resources, they're, they're in withdrawal and they are cranky. And because withdrawal is not pleasant, so they're not pleasant. Mm. So there's this antagonism between a drug user in withdrawal and the people in the ED who ostensibly could be there to help them. And you feel they can't because they have trouble dealing emotionally when they have a lot of pressure, all the stuff going on with people who are just very, very, very difficult. Are you talking about the ED docs or the yeah. drug users? The, the ED docs. I think, I think it's true on both ends of that uh, equation. And, uh, you know, I deal with addicts in my life, and I do what you said, Loretta, struck a nerve. I was dealing this weekend with one I'm related to. And it strikes me how you get sucked in wanting to help somebody, but you really can't help them if they don't want to help themselves. At the end of a conversation where you think you're helping them, this happened to me Saturday night. In the end, you're getting hit up for money on a preposterous 
reason and you realize you've been played the whole time and they're just going to get high again. So how do you deal with that as a researcher, as a public health person, as someone in the ER dealing with cranky withdrawal people, as a family member? How do you deal with someone who doesn't want to get off drugs? Maybe the, the um, paramedic's right. How do you deal? I, I, I want to take this a little bit away from, from opioid use disorder and think about it more in terms of opioid use disorder as a chronic disease. How do you deal with the person who, um, you know, continues to, to eat, eat bad food when they've got high, you know, inappropriate food when they've got high blood pressure and diabetes, right? How do you stop, how do you stop people from, from, let's put it in a more positive way, how do you get people to change difficult lifestyles that are clearly affecting one or more of their organ systems? when um, that's not what they want to do and that's not what their body is telling them to do and that is not what is making them, at least in the short run, happy. And remember that these drugs, when people take them, do have the effect of making them, at least in the short run, feel normal. And, and, and we don't quite appreciate this, uh, yeah. but having talked to you know, many drug users over the years in, in the field work we've done, is that... Long-term drug users don't say they're getting high. They say they're when they take their drugs, they feel normal, mm-hmm. and because they're not in withdrawal anymore, and they can function. You know, yeah. they you you know you get someone out of withdrawal. Well, and they may not only be self-medicating for their opioid use disorder; they may be self-medicating for other mental health problems. I think that you know to to answer kind of your question about. Um, what can one do as a friend, a family, a, you know, uh, a, a provider? Um, there are things that that can be done. Um, cl- clearly, as Robert says, the person has to want to do something about um, their substance use, um, and that can be a transient thing. So when they're in the emergency room, they can say, God, you know, I, I just really scared myself because um, I thought I was doing everything right and here I am in the emergency room with an overdose. Yes, let me, you know, get, get me into treatment. Um, but I think that that can be a transient desire. And to understand that um, that compared to the desire um, for the bliss of a high, um, because I think a lot of them, even though they may be taking the opioids just to uh, stave off withdrawal and feel normal, as Robert says, a lot of them at some level are still wanting that bliss of the high as well. I mean, it's a very, very pleasant thing. So some so of them do got, get high. Yeah. You've got, you've, well, yeah, um, you've got uh, competing uh, desires there that you, you, you need to acknowledge and, and work with. I think that one of the big things about treatment, um, I am a strong proponent for medication-assisted treatment, methadone, buprenorphine, suboxone, um, but there there needs to be something in addition to that. And what you need to do in in working with people who do want to achieve sobriety is talk about their strengths, Um, you know, identify their strengths, work with them on their strengths. I think that this helps them to... Uh, begin to see that they're not, you know, uh, nobody and worthless. But what if they're right? What if they're taking this drug that we think, we all believe it's destroying their lives and you can see clinically that it's going to kill them. 
what if they're saying, this is what I want to do. You're really not going to stop me. And I'm going to live the next three weeks of my life or one day or four months the way I want to live it rather than the way you want to help me live for 20 years and be productive and feel better. I think anybody who is taking care of people, providing, you know, a service, a healthcare service has to respect the person they're providing the service to. I think it's a very harm reduction approach of you have to, as painful as it might be, you have to respect their right to live their life the way they want to live. Um, but at the same time, I think you should try to do what you can to encourage them that there could be another view. There could be another encourage way. Encourage that there could be a view. I yeah, see. so it's, you know, talking about the strengths, um, giving them a, a seed of hope, uh, I think is a very important component in addition to the medication. All right, and it's important to let you know that you listen to Dateline New Haven, WNHHFM, 103.5 FM, your, your source for community radio. Also, org. We're meeting with two people who know a lot about the opioid crisis that has been hitting our community, Robert Heimer and Loretta Grau of the Yale School of Public Health. And they're talking about, well, how bad is the problem? What can we do about it? Dominic DeVino writes in, it's sad police don't go after the dealers. People don't talk. My wife's 18-year-old sister is dead from fentanyl. There was no investigation. Um, it's, she's from uh, up in Litchfield. They, the state keep it so they can have a methadone clinic to make money off the addicts. This means we expect it by having clinics. They do work, although they are addicted to methadone. They say, I don't want to get sick. The ER needs to not give out narcotics and get people wanting more. Methadone needs to have limit time limits. Any thoughts on all that? From and thank you, Dominic, for your uh, thoughts. I hate I hate to say that, but almost everything in there is wrong. Um, first off, methadone is not a short term drug for people. Uh, just in the same way that statins are not a short term drug for treating high, you know high cholesterol or, or, or antihypertensives. Uh, Actually, I went off stands after 20 years. I didn't need them anymore. 20 years, not short term. No, 20 years <laughs> is not short term. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, yeah. and I'll bet. I just stopped taking it. My blood level didn't go and, up. And, and, and I'll bet when you, and I'll bet when you went off of it, um, you did it under doctor's supervision. Yes. See, and that's how, if you want to get off methadone, you do yeah. it very slowly. Yeah. Uh, and you do it under doctor's supervision. The same thing is true if you're on methadone and it stabilizes you for a long enough time period to straighten out your life, you may find that you can move from there to abstinence. But abstinence is a is a is is although it may be a goal, it is not the end. The end is to stop using drugs in a way that that is is characteristic of addiction. Being prescribed a medication as a treatment for disease is by definition not addiction. Addiction is the continued use of a substance or engaging in a behavior despite the negative consequences. Now, without, without at all disagreeing with a single word you said, how do we factor in when doctors were known to overprescribe OxyContin, especially a few years ago? I know they've been tightening up on it at the urging of drug companies who are making money on this addiction and then cause all these problems for people. The user might not have consciously known that she was or he was misusing the drug despite a doctor's order. So that's an important part of your definition. But that does seem to be a gray area between the person still got addicted, right? There are lots of multiple routes to addiction. Yeah. The route that you've described, a doctor prescribing opioids for 
say, chronic pain and that person becoming addicted is, in fact, in the studies we have done in, among suburban drug users in Connecticut and drug users in Maine, is the least likely scenario. Mm, that's so interesting because, you know, ever since that, I got so scared that I've never taken... I had a, a tooth pulled and it was really, really painful. They gave me Oxycontin. I want to take a single pill because I, I'm such a sucker. Simplistically, I look at the dudes. I said, oh, I think one of these pills I don't want to like and get so used to it that I'll be taking it after. But you're saying this isn't the big no, danger, right, no. Loretta? Big, so in, in um, larger studies than the ones that we have done um, across the nation, the number of uh, people, the, the proportion of people who are prescribed an opioid and for pain purposes, and go on to get into trouble with opioids, is probably way less than five percent. I Whoa. will even I will even say that's that, so interesting. I will say I think it's closer to one to two percent. And um, when you see uh, there, I know there's been a lot of uh, broadcasting um, in the media of. The city of New Haven is is suing Big Pharma, uh, yeah, everybody's saying that you've caused. So you think they're not look? They well, got their eyes on their off the ball. That's a different issue. But l let's just stick with this one for a minute. Um, when they say seventy five to eighty five percent of the people, uh, you know, who get hooked on heroin started on on an opioid, it's not the person that was prescribed. Like I say, it's the vast, vast, vast minority who get into trouble because of a doctor having prescribed them an opioid. It's the kid that goes into grandma's um, medicine cabinet oh. or um, one of his classmates um, starts him on, you know, that it's, it's diverted um, pharmaceutical uh, much more so. So that, I think that really that needs to be clarified. So that 85 to 95% number, 75 to 85, 75, the people who are hooked on heroin started with opioids. You're saying they started with opioids that were not prescribed by a physician. It were prescribed, but not to them. Right. So they and got they got they got a diverted pharmaceutical. And so is that is that mean that it, we're really missing the boat? I mean, society is focused on this. I told you my story about my tooth getting pulled. What? What? But it, it, are we really misunderstanding this, Robert and Loretta? That it's really not that big a problem. I know you wouldn't it, sanction. It, it's a, a it's, doctor. It's a huge what, problem. What was <laughs> what was a huge problem? was that when we decided in the 80s and 90s that pain was the fifth vital sign and needed to be and people needed to be medicated for pain we did not have any research done about what was appropriate treatment for chronic pain mm -hmm. we had opioids it's like when you have uh, a hammer everything's a nail um you know the nail was chronic pain even though it's not it turns out it's not a nail and is not should, shouldn't be treated with opioids but there were very few alternatives. Uh, we could have used non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs. The side effects of those were ulcers and, and kidney problems. Uh, you could have prescribed bed rest. But and this was in the 70s and 80s. The 80s and 90s. 80s yeah. and 90s. Beginning. We decided that pain was a fifth vital sign that you really have to treat it, but that when we're treating chronic pain, we hadn't thought out or didn't have the knowledge yet about how best to treat that. And we also have a systems problem, is that the best treatment is bed rest. But most people who have chronic pain are in jobs where they can't afford to take three months I know, off. They I won't know. have insurance, they'll lose their jobs. That option is out. The next option is, you know, to go to physical therapy three times a week for six months. Well, most insurance plans don't cover that. And it, they're very, very expensive. I want to mm. piggyback on what Robert said, because so I think So then we do the drugs, it's easier. 
it, yeah, yeah. I can write you. A, I can write you a thirty-day refillable script for you know for an opioid now, and the patient goes home happy, and the doctor feels like he's done something. Mm. This is a problem that has been building, and Robert has has really kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, Ooh, using my <laughs> metaphor back at me. Ooh, how ugly. Uh, was that this was not? It's so easy to see things as black and white or to blame this this group or that group but yeah. actually this it was a multifactorial um problem where the the that characterization of or the identification of the fifth vital sign was not coming from entirely solely the pharmaceutical industry not at all this originally. was a matter of practitioners experts in their field and a, a, a growing sentiment in the field of medicine that this is a fifth. I love item. hearing this. I love hearing this this explanation because the popular story I always Absolutely. hear is the doctors, the company sleazy pays off the doctor. The doctor makes tons of money by writing all these prescriptions. Is over medicating people. They're all getting opioids and then they go and they're all going over there, to heroin. There certainly were doctors who set up pill mills specifically for that, but they were less than one percent of doctors. Mm. And, and 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 when. And when the DEA went after those people, the Drug Enforcement Administration went after those people and shut down the, that supply, that's when people turned to heroin and eventually fentanyl. And that's why we've seen the increases in drug deaths uh, in this state now. It's because people have been pushed off of pharmaceutical opiates where they got a dose of, of drug that they knew what it was every time they took it. And instead they were going out on the street and buying a bag of, of dope which was, and experimenting on themselves every time. So you, what would have been better if the DEA was a little more, just get rid of the crooks, but don't overdo it? And, and this is another problem. Unintended consequences, good abs motives? Absolutely. Uh, this well, is no, because we've known even before this that supply side war on drugs is a failure. Mm. And, and this is where, where, where Dominic is a little off base. You're never going to get rid of the narco-traffickers so long as you have a black market to... Um, to feed uh, an economic, to create an economic incentive to have that market. And when you take a bunch of people who are addicted or dependent upon, in this case, because they were, it wasn't prescribed and it was causing problems in their lives, so they were addicted to these opioids, these pharmaceutical opioids, and withdraw the pharmaceutical opioids without providing them with treatment as an option, an effective treatment and proper treatment, evidence-based treatment, and then all of a sudden they turn to to, to narco traffickers creating new markets for heroin so we throughout the country so we where it never was. heroin and fentanyl then no. and regulate it? No. We, but the funny thing is, even though we have controlled the flow of pharmaceutical opioids and they, the, the number in circulation have been decreasing since 2010, the number of opioid deaths have gone up. No, what we need to do is provide better uh, prevention of drug use uh, I among adolescents. We need to provide treatment for people who already have developed opioid use disorders. Mm -hmm. And we know what effective evidence-based treatment is. This state has been really, both has been, has done some good things in that regard at the level of, of the actual methadone providers who, who have expanded their, their services and have gotten rid of waiting lists so that you can now walk into into a treatment clinic in New Haven or Bridgeport and be in proper medical care within 90 minutes. Mm. Loretta, you wanted to jump in there about those. I, I just wanted to really restate the, the, the point that this is not the, 
to be blamed on one group or another. That this was a, a, a process with the with the fifth meta, uh, vital sign, with then the pharmaceuticals kind of uh, doing more marketing of the opioids. We are now starting to get the results of that and seeing, oh my gosh, this is um, a problem. And we have been cutting back on, I think it's much more difficult for you today to go and get a, you know, a limitless... And isn't that mostly good? It's uh, like well, I have a relative who's an addict and really needed pain medication when a, when a um, arm broke. Couldn't get it because of her history from the doctor. We were kind of glad. Yeah. No, no I mean, the, fu- the funny thing is that we know that for acute either trauma or post-surgical care, uh, pain gets in the way of healing. As someone who's had two knee replacements and mm. really appreciated what the opioids did so that I could rehabilitate my knees, I understand the importance of treating acute pain with opioids. You are, you're, you're not dealing with the underlying problem. You're masking the pain so that you can re- mm. recover. Uh, you know, but once you've reached the point of, of opioid use disorder, you don't recover from that. You know, that's an ongoing problem that requires a, a different approach. So you do need, so it sounds like what you're saying is pain needs, they just said you have to intelligently manage pain with treatment and have some, regulation of it rather than just black market and that goes for that goes for the chronic and the acute pain because incidentally um it's not necessarily that just because i've got acute pain post post procedure or post trauma of some sort um and says the uh, non-steroidal uh um what I can, what is anti-inflammatory drug. Anti-inflammatory. <laughs> I couldn't get the ai out there <laughs> um it can be as effective as opiates um, so that it's not a matter of, oh, wow, you've got acute pain. Let's prescribe, you know, 30 days worth of, of, uh, opioids for you. They are definitely limiting. Um, you know, Robert talked about his knee replacements. I had a procedure where I had a complication and it was very difficult for me to get a few days more of an opioid. Um, I really had to be very aggressive in advocating for myself because of this uh, complication. So I think that doctors, at least here in Connecticut or in the New Haven area, are very aware and have modified their um, uh, prescribing uh, habits what, what on about, the whole. What about the lawsuit that New Haven's filing? Is it misplaced to be suing Big Pharma? Hmm. Uh, I, I, would, I would love to see a suit instead. Um uh that not only encompass if you go if you're going to go this route and I'm no I don't want to speculate as to whether it's correct or not, but you also have to include um the insurance companies who who were willing to uh pay for long large and uh prolonged dosing with opioids uh despite the lack of medical evidence that it was a, a useful therapy mm. you know Insurance companies have always denied people um, access to treatments and medications that are unproven, but not here. But it was cheaper than giving it a physical che- therapy. It was, it was cheaper than paying for what was effective by a long shot. But are you also saying, Robert, without putting words in your mouth, that if you're going to go to the lawsuit, include insurance companies, but you're not sure that the lawsuit is the big target, the important strategy that more it is, is having better regulation of 
of management of pain through drug treatment so that you could deal with underlying issues? At this point, we need a joint, a, 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 we need a, a, a parallel approach between reducing the flow of divertible pharmaceuticals that are out there in the public domain by shorter prescriptions for appropriate lengths of time for acute uh, events or for terminal cancer, terminal pain, and um, proper treatment for those people who can no longer get those pharmaceutical opioids so they don't have to turn to, to black market heroin or fentanyl. All right, but you are turning, you have turned to Dateline New Haven and WNHH, one of the point FM, one of the live stream, newhaveninfant.org. We're talking about the opioid crisis, and it is a crisis through Robert Heimer, Leonard Grau of the Yale School of Public Health. You, talk, you talked about harm reduction, Robert, and looking at addiction as disease. You really, and Loretta, I don't know if you worked on this or not, Robert, was one of the most important figures in New Haven helping us and the whole country start to view drug problem that way when in the i guess it was in the um early 90s new haven sampled the needle exchange where you gave out free needles through addicts so that they wouldn't spread hiv aids virus and at that time it was very controversial new york wouldn't do it there was a culturally conservative movement among black voters who had elected elected black mayors both in new york and new haven our, our mayor in New Haven, first elected black mayor, John Daniels, was persuaded to support this in an needle exchange, which he was not inclined to do. And then the numbers came out. You did a study, and you showed that you saved lives in New Haven with this. And if I remember correctly, I remember being cited on the front page of the New York Times, an article about how New York and other cities were now going to do needle exchanges. They, were gonna, they now had the cover of scientific evidence to support it, and therefore a lot of lives were changed and a lot of minds were changed. Robert, did I just give a simplistic view of what happened, or is that accurate? And the way that public health research can bring about change? It is. You were both simple and absolutely accurate. <laughs> <laughs> um, the fact of the matter is that the, the data and, and the analysis of the data were unequivocal in the impact that it's had in New Haven, in the state of Connecticut, and in many places nationwide. And I'll give you two examples the first one is the biggest HIV epidemic in drug users was in New York. In the, in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, there were about six, maybe 6,000 opioid overdose deaths. I mean, sorry, 6,000 HIV cases a year. We're talking about HIV. And um, this was because access to syringes was scarce. The number of syringes increased dramatically, first through underground illegal needle exchange programs and then through a legal program in the city of, of New Haven. The last year for which I have data, I think is 2015, there were 35 new diagnoses of, HI, mm -hmm. of HIV among people who inject drugs. Wow. From 6,000 to 35. Wow. In Connecticut, I think the number statewide... Uh, last reportable year, 2016, was 12. Wow. Uh, so do you it feel... Be, it used to be hundreds that and enough? maybe thousands at, every year. You've been to this game, Robert, for what, 40 years? Public health research? Oh, jeez. More. Uh, I'm go I, it'll, be, it'll be 30 in, in oh, 2020. 30. Do you feel that that one statistic makes it worth it? Like, when you die, you're going to say, I really did something that helped that number of people being unnecessarily killed from drug overdoses it's not good. You're going to feel like HIV? you made a difference in real life yes. with the research you did. Yes. It's now, not can you think of a case where being a public health person 
was not effective, where there might have been pitfalls in that profession in the way it affected the public debate and something you learned from how your research was used or misused? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, we, 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 we learn all the time that our tools are approximations. And, 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 sometimes, and sometimes we are, we are off. Uh, when we, for instance, discovered that um, antibiotics were, were really good at saving people's lives, we decided we should put antibiotics in all sorts of products and, and now all, we're drinking and, it in and, our water. And, 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 now, yeah. and now we have, have multi-drug resistant bacteria that are you know, immune to almost any kind. We have these superbugs. And that's because we, we, we again acted with the best of intentions, but without enough Which is, I love what Loretta was saying earlier when you try to really look at the causes. Now, is that your fault? You do the research. There's probably no such thing as value-neutral research, but to a certain extent, you can't control what's done with your research. You can ask the right questions and try to get good facts so good decisions are made, but you are not the policymaker, correct? Or are you? No, we are not policymakers. I tell my students all the time that the plural of anecdote isn't data, but the mm. plural of anecdote is often policy. If you have a good story, regardless of whether it's true or false, you can sell people on it. But do you still, you still choose what to research and what to highlight? Um, do, you, do you have some responsibility as a researcher for how your research is misused by public policymakers? Of course you do. You have I'm not to, sure of the answer to that, by the way. I, I really think, meant that as a real I think, question. I think, I think when someone misuses your, your statistics or your numbers or your conclusions, um, you have to go out and become an advocate for the correct interpretation of the data. All right, now, Loretta, I want to ask you what about some of these questions in your own life. Is there something you could point to where research you did made a difference in real people's lives? Well, I've been working with Robert for the last 20-plus years, so of course. You worked on the needle exchange, too? <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, but um, See, the reason I knew he worked on it because... Oh, look, he made a splash. When he... And also, I knew him. Yeah. So I felt like, oh, I knew the guy who did this. That's cool. I'm reading the New York Times, you know. Uh, uh, well, I'm a relative newbie. I've been only here for 20-some years. So, yeah. Uh, but yeah, no. Um, I'm going to ask you to get real close to the mic. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, Don't apologize. So what was your question? So can you think of, so would that be an example where you feel like the way you did made a difference? I think, yes, it does. I also think that what the public needs to understand is research, scientific research, is a dialogue. It's a conversation. That Clinical research, where you're out in the community, when you're out there in real life, in other words, you're not uh, an experiment going, in a, uh, going on in a lab in a highly controlled environment, but when you're out there in real life, there's so, many, there's so much opportunity for noise in your data, for you know, things to creep in that you just can't... And you as a researcher, you're not looking, as you said, at a test tube, you're looking at human beings, you are affected by that, correct? You care about the people you're looking at. Yes. You might even re develop relationships. I don't mean like intense personal relationships. Like you care that person's going to go home. You don't want them to die. Right. No, absolutely. Can but that's way what you figure out. So, but so the, the whole thing is that it's a dialogue. And when you're doing clinical research, when you're doing research out there in the community, when you're doing it in real life, it's always subject to interpretation. 
And so some people can come in and say, well, yeah, but you didn't think, you know, think about this. And yet, so there's always room for multiple or there's often, I'm not going to say always, there's multiple uh, room for multiple interpretations. And you need to, uh, if you believe in what you've done and you believe that it was sound, I mean, it's, it's a co- incumbent on, upon you to explain uh, in that in that conversation, explain uh, why you believe what you believe and why you believe this to be valid. Uh, I also want to bring up the the issue of face validity because I think that uh, it's a technical term, but I'll explain it in a minute. Um, I think that that plays into your question about you know researchers versus policymakers. Um, face validity is something just seems to make sense uh, at face value. That um, so it, in talking about HIV, uh, there was a concern at one point that if we give condoms, you know, if we distribute condoms to teenagers, they're just going to go wild. Um, similarly, <laughs> without when, thinking about gee, that's no fun having sex with condoms. That's the idea among teenagers, right? So I don't know if right. it makes it so wild. It doesn't feel wild. And the same thing um, when it came to the needles, uh, needle exchanges. Right, that everybody's going to be shooting up. Where the evidence once the research was done to look at that uh, issue shows pretty convincingly in both cases that that is not the case but there's a certain face validity for some people that you mean oh, when yeah. something kind of sounds like it makes sense it makes sense like if you just have in, like yeah. in trade policy if you just have um if you just shut down other companies make solar panels you're going to protect the industry without realizing that 10 times as many jobs come in the solar industry here from selling products made in China and that the two companies you're protecting are owned by China. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and that plays into that was policy. Yes, it is news, but it's great. It's true. <laughs> um, but that plays into policy also. And um, it's very hard, I think, to... Well, the best we can do, I don't know how Robert feels about this, but the best we can do is just, you know, stay the course and, and keep saying what we believe to be true. True. And, you know, every year... I get to but meet it's the Robert. Not, it's not what we it's not what we believe to be true. Because a evidence. lot of people believe things right. to be true that are complete fantasy. Good point. That we can demonstrate with the preponderance of evidence is true. That's our job. Have you ever not revealed something you found out because you thought it would lead to bad policy or policy you didn't agree with? Uh, I'm wrestling. I'm wrestling with that actually right now. Not that I'm not going to reveal it, but I've discovered something that was very disconcerting in a study we just we, we finished a couple of years ago, comparing uh, HIV in drug users in in two former Soviet Union countries, Russia and Estonia. And Estonia has done all these things to try to control their HIV epidemic in drug users, and whereas Russia has done everything wrong. And, and Estonia has done everything right, and yet there's no difference in HIV incidents in drug users in these two countries. And why are you struggling with that? Because then if you're going to say, like, no matter what because you do, somebody addicts will, are going to do what will, they do. Because someone will, mis, will misuse the data. The, to the say what? To say let's not try. The conclusion I would reach is that, is that the scale of the program in Estonia is inadequate. Because we know from so many other places that... Uh, that these approaches work only if they're scaled up to a region, a, a sufficient size to make a difference. But would another side say, let's defund 
Yes, efforts they to do would. with addiction it's because not, you see it makes no difference. In Russia, they didn't care. And in and Russia, the same people, and Russia addicts could, are going to be addicts. And ru- well, in Russia, they're going to say, see, it, you know, you do it in, in our culture, our, our Soviet Union culture, and it doesn't work, so we don't, we don't have to feel guilty that, that, that we haven't implemented it. We don't have to do it here. We can shut down the programs, the few programs in the country that actually have worked. So what are you going to do with this data, given that you're wrestling with it? How are you wrestling with it, and what's going to be the outcome of your wrestling? I'm still going to have to present it, but I'm going to have to present it with the appropriate caveats, and I'm going to have to find the correct... Um, you know, no, no, no policymaker is going to read my, my six-page-long, single-space, double-columned scientific article. Um, they're probably not even going to read the 250-word abstract. Actually, Hillary might have read it, but but they're going <laughs> but they're going to read the title. Yeah. So, and I, we've seen this happen before with needle exchange. Um. In the in, there was an outbreak of of HIV among drug users in Vancouver, in the Washington or Canada. Uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, in the late 1990s uh late late 1990s um and they had a needle exchange program but it wasn't it wasn't big enough and the title of their article was needle exchange is not enough and people jumped on this to say look needle exchange doesn't work and i was so upset at at the people who wrote who who crafted that title when the title should have been needle exchange is necessary, but not sufficient. All right. I want to ask you, as we're running out of time, the, the last question I wanted to ask you was the role of rehab. Um, you said that, I think if I have this right, that the, what has the biggest impact on addiction, opioid addiction is treatment as opposed to residential rehab. Or is that not true? The big, a big push on residential rehab Let's, right now. Let, let's let's start with the, the 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 intake process. Okay, if the the primary intake process that people seek is detox. Detox is simply unethical medicine, plain and simple. To put mm-hmm. someone into a detoxification program that lowers their tolerance without treating their long term chronic disease of opioid use disorder and releasing them whether to the street or even to some other abstinence-based program and without dealing with their craving and their, their desire to start using drugs again results in overdose deaths. More than if they were still using because their tolerance goes down, they go back out on the street, they use drugs like they used to use before, or they use drugs when they're disinhibited, having already used alcohol, and of course the combination of alcohol and opiates. So does, doubly de- does detox put in institutional barriers to getting people the treatment they need because it costs more, as you're saying, insurance? Or do you still do the detox? No, you don't. Do, you don't need to do the detox. You need to start people on on medication-based treatment with suboxone. Buprenorphine is the active ingredient in in the drug called suboxone or on methadone. And it turns out that in head-to-head comparisons, methadone is actually the more effective drug in terms of... So you're against detox? I think detox is unethical. I I would shut... If it were up to me, I would shut down detox programs because for, for, for opioids, because they don't... Because they put people at greater risk. And if your Hippocratic oath says do no harm, 
you're do actually doing harm. This by is so Instagram. I think what was the face values? What was the face oh, validity. validity? So the face validity is like sort of that gut that get would people, say get people off. Let drugs. them feel what it's like to be off drugs and give them a chance for some relief and say, hey, I want to feel like this and free. You don't. You don't feel that relief. What you feel, first of all, is withdrawal. Is you know, is 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 called cold turkey because you sweat. Uh, you have goosebumps. You're miserable for for a long period of time. But then do you say, "I want to go. I don't want to experience that again." So I'm gonna go back. So I'm gonna go back on back yes. to face validity. Right, right. But you're saying the data doesn't show that at all. Well, people do. The failure rate for for detoxification programs that you know, and and so even so, even when you add 21 days sub, you know, subsequent abstinence based inpatient rehab, the failure rate is about 90 um, percent at a year. So no so it's detox. 10 percent success rate. You put people. In methadone, uh, the success rate can range anywhere from from fifty percent in badly run programs to eighty percent in well run programs. So let's take the average. So let's, no take, let's take let's take the average 65 percent or so. Okay, I, I have t two choices for you. You want a ten percent successful treatment, or do you want a, a sixty five percent successful treatment? Well, well, because of the stigma about drug use, people are choosing the ten percent, which is just dead wrong. So, and I literally mean dead because they're dying of overdose. No detox, no gomers, no fights among doctors and addicts in the emergency room. We get to the root of the problem. We, yes, I learned well, a, a little bit of the. So, well, see, I'm bit. still the journalist. I got to make it real simple. Yeah, right. We, right, we, right, right we're right. not going to give a face validity yet. We do have ratings. <laughs> my, we don't have ratings, is, but if we had complicated. ratings, I always it's, say it's complicated. It's complicated. Um, I also believe that what what you need to put in there is you need a menu. You need an array of options because, again, with harm reduction kind of approach, you know, not everybody is going to maybe want to go into methadone or go on to buprenorphine. They may want to do something else, and they need to take their path to sobriety in the way they take their path. It will probably be a repeated process. But, you know, you've got to respect them as well. It's complicated, the opioid crisis, but, but... They should be properly counseled about about the, the success rates of the different options, it, and then they can choose. Yes. It may be complicated, but Robert Heimer and Loretta Grau, Yale public health professors who have been at the front lines of this epidemic, have made, it, made a lot more sense to us just in the last 50 minutes on WNHH. Thank you so much for joining us. I really did learn a lot, and this is life and death stuff. Right. That's that what our community's facing, and I salute you for the work you've been doing for decades to keep people alive with good data and good research. Keep it going. Thank you thank for inviting you. us in today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Dominic, for writing in. I'm sorry we didn't get to all your points. And uh, we're going to take it out with the Afro-Semitic Experience performing I Wish I Knew How It Would Feel to Be Free from the group CD, A Plea for Peace. Now, we know what it's like to be free. We just got to remember to book our flight. Book your flight with us all day and all night long here at WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio.